There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today, I always say today is a very different show, but today is. One of the joys of running this show is I get to meet and interview a fascinating set of characters who have an interesting set of experiences and ideas. And today is really not an exception. In fact, I think you're going to find it's kind of a treat. So my guest is not a typical corporate type or a corporate speaker or a typical corporate author in any stretch of the imagination. Instead, he has his own story of transformation, this time from scientist to leader. And he's got a lot of wonderful experience in getting people to do what he wants them to do without using any hierarchical power. And as you're going to hear from him, I think he actually feels like he has no real power. I'll also add he has some amazingly good advice for life. Now, what makes Michael particularly fun is one, his website is fabulous. Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Denin, D-E-N-N-I-N, dot O-V-P-T-L, dot U-C-I, dot E-D-U. Michael's a physicist a scientist and an academic researcher turned leader. He was professor of physics and astronomy at University of California, Irvine, and he's now the vice president provost for teaching and learning, and he's the dean of the Division of Undergraduate Education. His historical research has been on the dynamics of foam and modeling the ice melange in the fjords. But he's really most well-known for his YouTube series on fascinating fights. He's done a lot of um, media presentations, including some YouTube, on the science of some pop icons like our superheroes, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, and so on. Um, He also has a book, which I can highly recommend if you're interested, on the intersection between science and faith. It's called Divine Science, Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm very excited. I am really looking forward to it. Now, I have to promise everybody, I am going to ask you about the science of superheroes. Right. We're going to do it at the very end of the show. So that is a tease to make sure everybody listens all the way through. <laughs> good. What good. I want to start with, though, is your personal jo- journey. So you are an academic, a faculty member, and in many ways, you are still. You still work at a university. But you've suddenly, how many years have you been doing this? So I've been a faculty member for 21 years, and of course I had about a year and a half as a postdoc, and you know six or seven years as a grad student before that. So it's I've been doing physics research for a good long time now. Okay, all right. So you got involved, or by either by hook or by crook, <laughs> by desire, to go into a leadership role at the university. So why did you do that? What did you do, and why did you do it? So the big you know, for people who aren't as familiar, you know, at, at the university, um, faculty themselves don't really have bosses. We're fairly independent. We run our labs. Um, we do have to teach at set times, and there is some, 
there's certainly accountability, but it's very collegial and to each other uh, in that respect. Now, but of course the university has to run. It does have an administrative structure. And at UCI, we have many different academic schools, and they're run by deans, and they oversee the budgets and faculty hiring and staff hiring and make the things work. But we also have central administration, and the big thing at a place like UC Irvine, we're a major research university, and some of the big important roles are the vice chancellor of research to make sure our research endeavor happens. And I've spent roughly 19 years um, complaining, talking about, hoping, wishing, looking at how to teach better. And as so often happens in life, the university was looking at what to do around that, and I was on a committee that recommended we create a leadership position around teaching at that same level as leadership around research. And they actually went and did that. And uh, I was initially on the search committee for that position, and after the first search failed, I realized, no, I really need to do that. Um, that's my chance to give back to the university, but also mold what this position will be going forward. So um, I threw my hat in the ring, and I, and I got selected. So, and that was about two and a half years ago. And okay. so not only am I new at administration, I'm in a completely new administration position, getting to create what that position looks like. <laughs> the best of all worlds. It can be done yeah. anyway. And you don't have to hold up your standards to anybody who's done it before. You're kind of inventing it. Exactly. Um, I come from an academic background, so I was a faculty member for a number of years. And I know well that other academics, as you said, tend to disdain in some places the administrative work, that it is menial and unimportant and unnecessary and not core to the mission of the university as a whole. And so they just genuinely don't like it or don't have as much respect for it as perhaps we might think they need to. I presume that's been your experience at UCI? Yes, um, to a large extent, though. What's, what I find, and it's interesting, even more so, my, my dad's uh, just retired as of last year, Professor, um, and he could not believe his son was going over to the dark side of administration. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. One advantage to me that made it a little easier at UCI, and, and every university is a little different, is there is that constant tension underlying between faculty and administration, but our administration tends to be very always drawn from the faculty, the deans and the positions I'm in. And we have, I think, a, a fairly high rate of people doing it for a term or two and going back to the faculty. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it does make it a little easier here. I think um, it's a little bit less of a um, conf- con- confrontational relationship than you might have at some places. There are still plenty of times it's confrontational, and there's still plenty of time faculty think the administration doesn't know what they're talking about. But it does help to have that turnover. Right. I can imagine that one. So, all right. So let's take your personal story. So you go from being a researcher responsible for your own research and your own teaching and maybe some graduate students in a lab along the way. And now you take over running a staff for yeah. the first time in your life. How many people on your staff? There's over 100. Um, and I, I've lost track but because we've blended three divisions together and there's been a lot of movement. But, you know, one to 200 people I'm now overseeing suddenly. So what was that transition like? What was easy for you? What did you have to learn to do? What have you discovered being a leader? Well, I think 
I think one of the biggest things I rediscovered that I always knew is how important it is to understand what both people's hopes were and what their fears are. Uh, staff live in a very different world than faculty. Um, I live in the world of research, I live in the world of teaching, and I live in a world of tenure. So I live in a world where risk and failure, in the good sense, is happening all the time around me. And ambiguity is happening all the time. When you live in the world of research, you don't really know what the outcomes are going to be. You don't know what the questions are. And, and even though I know tenure gets a lot of negative press sometimes, you know, if you are in a highly ambiguous, high-risk-taking space, tenure gives you the security to mentally handle that and do it well. And there are big payoffs that come from that. And I had to quickly adjust to a world where I came in with this risk attitude and this push-forward attitude, and it makes the staff very nervous. Um, and it's not something they're as useful to, used to. And so there was a lot of trust building I had to do, a lot of meeting with the staff. You know, they've heard many times people say, oh, it's okay to make mistakes, and then it turns out not actually to be okay to make mistakes. <laughs> um, and so when I say it, it's like one more person saying it. So to get them to a point where it's like, oh, no, Michael really means that, um, has, has been, I think, both big for the staff, but big for me to navigate that space. Because you, you can't just, like, declare it. You can't just say, this is the way I am, and you're going to believe me. Right. Not if I've seen it five times by five other people before. And you exactly. may be that way, but your boss, Michael, may not be that way ultimately. So right. what was the secret? I mean, you said you did a lot of meetings with them, but what's the, in essence, did you do to get the staff to believe you they could take some risks? Well, I think part of it was I'm very comfortable sharing my personal story. And I early on um, really let people know why I am where I am. And there's two big pieces that I shared that, I, that make my leadership style, I realized what it was. And one was the lab and the research, and I've mentioned that. The other is coaching youth sports. Um, okay. It's a unique experience. You're dealing with, I find, actually a lot of the things that you deal with with staff and leadership because it all comes down to personalities. But at the end of the day, I was a successful coach because um, – People laugh when I say this. I, I would tell my team, if we're not making mistakes out on the field, we're not trying hard enough. So if, if we make no mistakes, that's a bad game. We need to make mistakes. We just need to make one less mistake than the other team, and then we win. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, that was, I think, just a very genuine. Like they knew that, that I, I really couldn't be making up that attitude, right? I lived coaching three kids through soccer for, you know, 15 years, with an attitude of we push boundaries to do better, and in the process, yes, mistakes are made, but you learn from them, and you then keep moving. The mistake is not a problem as long as you learn from it. And, and then early on, you know, I just lived that. There were, you know, even myself, I am also someone who very quickly admits, okay, that was my mistake. We shouldn't have done that. I'll take responsibility for it. Here's what I learned. Let's move on. And seeing all of those things, I think, helped people realize it was genuine. Okay. It's very interesting. It's a very parallel story from what I hear in a lot of business leaders. So I'm going to take you out of the academic context for just a minute. Right. They'll often say, in fact, one in particular, you know, working with an Asian audience says, I say, how do you get an Asian group when you're an American, Japanese in particular, to follow you and to believe that they can challenge you? 
And he says you have to find the first person who's doing it and make it absolutely brilliant that they've just done it. Right. As in, you just caught my mistake. That's fabulous. That's awesome. And it's that ability to do it yourself and to be okay and admit it and say it out loud. Yep, I got that wrong. Let's move forward. And I think it's interesting to watch. I also find that in in moments of tension and personal conflict to be Mm -hmm. an incredible tool that people highly underestimate. I think particularly as Americans, we often feel like when there's a conflict, the goal is to win. Mm -hmm. Um, And we we have to, quote, look good out of it. And the number of times, uh, you know, a conflict has started, and and I can identify clearly something I've done that's contributed to it. I mean, I don't have to take ownership for the whole conflict, but if I just say, oh, wait, you know what? I shouldn't have done that there. Um, yes, it was wrong for me to call, call that out in front of people. I can see where that upset you. Or it was wrong for me to do um, this here. It, it really, people are, are shocked, first of all, by it, so they stop. <laughs> um, and, and then they're like, okay, if you're owning that, it's kind of harder not to own what they did. And if we've all owned it, we're like, okay, so that's what happened. And now we can move forward. It's not a blame. We just own what we need to and move forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazingly simple when you say it, and it's extraordinarily difficult to do it in the moment. It is very hard. It is very hard to do in the moment. And and I joke that that's why I never do it at home because I'm too tired. I've done it at work. (laughs) (laughs) So when your family calls in and says, yes, wait a minute, what about that event last week? Um, I can't tell you how many times I see this and how actually easy it is to resolve some conflicts. And sometimes it takes a third party who can reach in and kind of dispel, you know, all the craziness that people have interpreted and get down to, you need an apology for this and you need an apology for this. Okay. And can we move forward? Um, But it's, you know, emotions come and people are upset and you're trying to prove yourself and you're trying to, um, all that stuff going on. And then it's just really hard to say, you're right, I got a piece of it wrong. What's interesting to me is how individual moments in our life if we are able to somehow internalize them as an interesting lesson, can come back and help with that. I actually ended up, despite the fact that they say academics never serve on juries, I ended up on a jury once. And I'll never forget what the judge said. He, he said, whoever ends up foreman, pay attention. If people start getting emotional, call a break. Because once we commit to something out of emotions, it's very hard for us to back down. And in the jury room, you're going to have to debate, you're going to have to discuss, you're going to have to disagree initially, but you're going to have to disagree in a way that you're willing to later give up your opinion, perhaps, if more evidence comes to light that convinces you. And, and it was true. We, we did that. And, and that my one jury experience was very positive. And it was so, it just so stuck with me that if I can keep people from emotionally committing to something too much, they're much more open to, if new evidence comes to light, changing their perspective. Okay. So now, any secrets for how you do that? Here we have a faculty committee that don't necessarily have to go along with you. They're right. debating some po- policy, law, you know, whatever it is that we're debating, thing we're going to do, and it's going to affect all of their lives. How do you keep people from emotionally committing too soon? So one thing is um, having food around, because then you can take a break. <laughs> Um, but I actually, I think part of it, which has been hard for me to do, and I am 
It's interesting. I am personally much better in a meeting if I'm chairing it than if I'm just a member. Because if I'm a member, I'm likely to become the emotionally committed person that's yelling at everybody else just as much. But if I'm the chair, I really, I view my job as, as paying attention to when the tension starts to escalate and engaging that person directly and saying, okay, I sense something going on here. Um, let's take it a step back. What, is your, what are your concerns here um, maybe outside of this point? Like get them to some facts and some data because huh? often when we're getting emotional, it's, it, we're, we're moving away from the actual facts. You know, it might be, and it usually turns out it's like, oh, I've had a bad experience where a student took advantage of X, and I don't want that to ever happen again. And getting them to realize, okay, you know what, there's always going to be the student who, no matter what policy or rule we write, someone's going to be able to take advantage of it. We can't envision all of those scenarios. So we have to let, you know, we can't, what's the phrase, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And just kind of remind them of the job of the moment. And, and most people can pull back from it at that point. And it's making sure that the point of the meeting is not for me to have the decision I necessarily want, but to be the person who helps calming down every time it starts to go a little more emotional. Okay. That's an interesting strategy that the job when you're chairing is to see the emotion, not necessarily to have the decision, but to calm right. things down. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think that that's worked well for me. The other big thing is to know going in, many things are going to take two meetings to decide. You know, is this the meeting where everyone has to vent their perspective? Um, and that's okay. And then you can get a sense of who really needs to maybe have a little chat one-on-one, kind of figure out where they are, and then the second meeting is where we decide. Um, that's also another really good strategy I found. If you can break it into the two, let everybody get their stuff out and now come back. And I know some people feel like, oh, maybe that's a waste of time. Why are we having two meetings? But it lets people feel really good about the decision when it's done and committed to it. Yeah. I always say in the stuff, you're going to take the same amount of time. Yeah. You can take the time after the decision to make it actually implementable, or you can take the time before the decision to make sure everybody's on board. Pick your choice. Yeah, It's going to be one of the two because emotions are part of it. People do have emotions. And if you're not reacting to those, dealing with those, managing those, keeping them at some moderate level, nothing's happening or you're actually not doing things that are interesting. I love this. Um, I often say that people try to accomplish too much in any one meeting and that you need to set your sights on a very small achievable in this meeting. Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. And then we can move, and then we move it step by step by step yeah. by forward. Okay, Michael. Before we close this segment, any last words of wisdom you've learned in leading? You know, I think for me, it's been a mantra of my life: never underestimate the power of fun and social interaction. When people have food together, have a meal together, have a break together, have fun together, they know that no matter how much. An argument may happen in a meeting. It's not personal because you've gotten to know the person personally and know who they really are. And I've been trying. That's one of the other big things I've been doing with the staff is say, I know we're all busy. I know we, we have a lot to do. But the 15 minutes to have our coffee break and coffee and tea and cookies is not going to make or break whether we get the other stuff done. In fact, it'll make the other stuff go faster and easier. So take the time out to relax and enjoy each other or the other stuff's just not worth it and not going to happen. 
<laughs> I love that one. We need our milk and cookies. I think, think that's an absolute principle of life. Totally a principle of life. All right, we're going to take a break at this moment. With me today is Michael Denon. Michael is Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning and the Dean of the Division of Undergraduate Education at University of California, Irvine. He started his life as a scientist, he still is a scientist, a professor of physics and astronomy, but has moved into the administration leadership side. And we've just been talking about Michael's experience in transitioning from being the expert researcher to being the person responsible for 100, 200 person staff. And I think, Michael, my favorite quote from this is your lessons learned from coaching youth sport is that... You're not going to be successful as a team if you're not making mistakes, because that means you're not trying hard enough. But we win if we can just make one less mistake than the other team. I think that's just such a brilliant (laughs) philosophy. I love it. When we come back, I want to talk with Michael about what it means to get a group of people who actually don't have to cooperate with you if they don't want to, to cooperate, make decisions, and move forward. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone, To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Michael Denon. Michael is currently at the University of California, Irvine. He was a professor of physics and astronomy and is now vice provost for teaching and learning and the dean of the division of the undergraduate education. We've just been talking about the experience of Michael is going from the expert leader, leading his lab, his students, being the scientist expert, which is the expert in the in some ways in the ultimate sense, where your mission and goal is around delivering knowledge and knowing knowledge and conveying knowledge to being a leader and what it means now to make that transition from one, from individual all the way over to a larger leadership role. 
getting people to follow you. Um, the, one of the things that Michael said has said is that he found the transition was particularly helpful when he got executive co- or easier when he got executive coaching. He found people to talk to. He would attend it classes, and that the whole focus was there was no need to do it alone. Other people had been on this journey before, and he needed to learn from them. And I think that's one of the things that I find personally for expert leaders is something they have a hard time doing. So what I want to do right now is to talk about how to motivate people to do what you want to do. Now, I have to give a little confession. I, I have been a faculty and I've been an associate dean at a university institution, and I find that faculty are challenging at best to motivate to go in any single direction. They don't really have to follow much of anything. They're trained to be critics of absolutely every single idea that someone would put forward. They don't have to comply, particularly if they have tenure. And as an administrator, you actually have relatively little control over what they do, um, especially when the bulk of their job is around research and teaching. And they tend also as a group not to agree with each other because remember their point is to be critics. That's what they're trained to do. So leading a university, I find, is an interesting challenge, um, a dynamic challenge. But Michael, that's my experience. What's been your experience? Um, well, I would agree with all of that. And <laughs> so I think for those who have not heard this description of faculty before, I know many people fit this description. It's always been described as trying to herd cats. Um, and anyone who has cats know they don't herd very well. Um, I then did hear someone say, and so the trick to herding cats is to move the food to where you want them to go. <laughs> um, and and, and the, what, so one... One aspect I hear a lot, and it's interesting, I, I, I'll, I'll give this as a specific example. In, in the university level now, we have years of, of research and evidence that we could actually be teaching better. I should not admit this on the radio because if people find out, they might actually sue us. Um, but getting faculty to change their teaching has been a major challenge. And I hear often, well, we just need, all we need to do is change the reward structure. Um, if we just rewarded teaching more, then people would change and do it better. And lately, as, as, as a person who's in administration, whose job is teaching and learning, um, I question that a little bit. Obviously, rewards are nice, but as someone pointed out, most faculty aren't really in this for the money. Ultimately, we don't you know, make a ton of money. We do very well, but we don't make a ton of money. But what I think faculty really do, I think we forget as administrators and as people who want to change, they deeply care about their students. They do want to teach better. They are, like everybody else, very busy people, and they are experts in their research, and teaching is hard, and I think it's hard to admit for someone who's an expert that they might not be doing it well. And it all comes back to me to understanding people's motivations. And I've, ever since I've taken this position, a lot of my colleagues, I think, right away were like, ah, now Michael's going to try and tell us how to teach better. And from the beginning, my message has been, my job as an administrator is to make your job as easy and effective as we can. So you tell me what your biggest challenge, problem, issue is with teaching, and I'll tell you how to do it easier, better, and for less time. And that has opened up conversations um, that have been incredibly productive. So, and I can't always make it easier, better, and cheaper and faster, but I can at least engage them in a conversation that 
they are excited about. That is also the direction I want them to go. Okay. I love that. Boy, what a simple idea. My job is not to tell you what to do. My job is to make your job easier and effective. So you tell me where you've got challenges, and I will help you figure out how to make it easier, better, cheaper. Yeah. And Great. and like I said, I can't always promise to do it, but let's try. And I think that's one of the things that I brought into this fear coming from running a lab. You know, when I in overseeing grad students, um, I always had more research ideas than I had students to complete. So, and I think many faculty in research experience this. So I was never in a mode of telling grad students what project they had to do. It was always a mode of, you know, here's 10 interesting ideas I've had. Are any of them appealing to you and which would you like to do? And then my job is to make sure you can do it and get your PhD and become a good researcher. Um, and I, I've taken that general attitude into my administrative role. And I think it's not just an academic one. You know, when I look as an outsider at companies, I would imagine this would apply to many types of leadership where it is a, a shift, but, you know, the, the person you're overseeing has a job that they want to do as well as they can. And in a sense, your job as the leader is to make sure they can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often say that the transition from leading as an expert to leading in a different way is the transition from knowing how to do and what to do and making sure people understand what to do and how to do to one where you are not doing, but you're enabling. Your task yeah. is to help people figure out how to do it, to ensure that it's done, but not to do it. So it's an enabling function. I, and that I takes think you- that's great. And yeah. if I could just add one thing, yeah. I think what you bring, when you've been an expert in something and made it to a leadership level, even if you're not the expert in what you're overseeing, you are kind of an expert in problem solving. And so if someone is stuck, even if you don't know a solution by suggesting two or three, even if they're crazy and don't make any sense, it can trigger their brain. Maybe one turns out to be right and you get lucky and then you look brilliant, but but it will trigger them to go, okay, you know, those are really silly ideas, Michael, but this, you're right. I can do something different, and this is what it is that I can do different, and now I can get out of my problem. Okay. So can you give us an idea, an example of an idea of a problem a faculty has presented to you that you've sort of helped solve? So one of the biggest challenges our faculty are running into are, are larger class sizes. Um, they also are running into the challenge that graduate students are expensive. So the standard solution to a larger class size is, and many people have, have been through university, this is their experience, you know, the professor lectures maybe to one to 400 students, but then you meet in groups of maybe 30, 15 if you're lucky, with a grad student um, one or two times a week to have that small class discussion and experience. And What's nice um, in, 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 in the science areas, and there's a growing body of research, that we can leverage up like senior undergraduates to come back and be mini teaching assistants. We call them learning assistants in the class and really break down that large class size into smaller chunks. And most faculty in their teaching, they don't have time to pay attention to the outside literature. They don't have time... Um, to know what's going on, so all they do is complain to their dean, we need more money for TAs, and the dean goes to the provost, and then there is no more money. You know, undergraduates um, often need course credit. They often need letters of recommendation. 
if they do need to be paid, it's generally at a lower rate than a graduate student because their expertise is lower. And so I've been able to work with the faculty to re-envision how they do their class. It doesn't really add any work to them, but it dramatically improves the student experience in a way that we all know if you have a smaller class, things go better. Um, and once they see that, then they start asking questions like, okay, well, what else is out there that you know that could help my teaching? This worked really well. Um, and it's a great um, stepping stone to additional conversations. Okay. I can see that. So some simple techniques, some successes. I often say to people, what you're looking for is who in the organization succeeded against this kind of problem, and then what right. can you copy? So you've picked up a couple of examples of what succeeded, and then we're going to adapt and adjust and change and shift and you know turn it around to one that works for you. Okay, I also get your notion <clears throat> that the general principle is to get people to identify where they need help so that it's yeah. suddenly their problem, not one you're telling them they should have as their problem. And that increases the motivation. That And then your job is to enable that, to facilitate that, to help them actually get there and to succeed. Now, how long does this take? Have you been at this for years and years and years? I mean, are, you know, how much success are you seeing? Depends how you look at it, because I've been complaining to faculty about their problems for years and years and years. But I've only been in the job two and a half. And actually, it's actually been very successful. Um, you know, one space that was a big win for me. So... For those not familiar with the academic world, the humanities, which is English, history, comparative literature, um, film studies, and the sciences, physics, biology, chemistry, don't always get along perfectly. And I am a physicist, and I've come into this role, and you could imagine there might be some suspicion around that. And I, one of the things I did this year is I finally started to get settled in. Like I said, it's been two and a half years. I would have loved to do it sooner, but... I had to create the whole job first. Um, but I called a meeting. I, I got a meeting with all of the chair, chairs of departments in our School of Humanities, and it was at lunchtime. And I just opened with, I said, okay, this is what I hear from humanities faculty as the problems they face teaching. Um, one is people seem to be trying to impose lo student learning outcomes, and, and they don't think that makes sense. People seem to be trying to oppose assessment. That doesn't make sense. And, and, and the third big one is, there's a challenge with being viewed as service courses. And I said, you know, that I don't really understand because in physics we're really proud of our service courses. I said, so I am not understanding what the challenges of the humanities are. You need to tell me, translate for me, what are your problems, what are your challenges, because I can't be your vice provost if I don't know what those are. And that opening, I mean, in that hour meeting, it was amazing. We got a lot on the table. Two of them have already invited me to come to their department to talk to the faculty most of them sent me a thank you email. We've never had a discussion like this. That was very helpful. We appreciated being able to say what, you know, what we're facing, um, and we're moving forward in that. So I actually find it, it can go surprisingly quickly because people like to be heard. They like to share yeah. what their problem is. Yes, don't just impose one more thing for me to do without understanding what it is I'm struggling with already. Exactly. It's amazing. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about this from an academic, from getting faculty to go along. It's just as applicable for a leader in a corporate world. I can't tell you how many times I sit down with somebody who's just taken over a new role. Their big question is, how do I get the team on board? And i got to create a strategy. And then again, I go out, I'm going to go out and give this great talk about our strategy forward. And I want people to be motivated and so on. And I stop them right there and I say, wrong starting point. Yeah. 
Because when you go and tell people this is what we're going to do, now it's your problem to make it happen. Yeah. The other direction oh, that makes is perfect sense. And to make it one make the their problems. problem. Yeah. Yeah, one of the problems historically in this teaching space, and I get it, there's a certain dynamic around research and way faculties interact that is not great but works. And so when people started doing research on teaching, they came out of it and, and fell into that dynamic of telling their colleagues, you know, you're doing all this wrong. You need to change. And people just never reacted well to that. Instead of saying, you know, I've learned some interesting things when I taught that made it easier and more fun. How's your teaching going? Maybe my ideas might help you. Um, right. You know, what are your problems? You know, what are your challenges? And let's talk. Um, it, even before I came into this position, my colleagues were always noticing um, I gave really hard exams, but I got really good teaching evaluations. Like that violates all principles of the university, right? You're supposed to only get good evaluations if your exams are easy. Um, you know, my students did really well on the hard exams. Um, my students really, like, enjoyed my class. People hated to, whenever there was um, two sections of a class taught, my, my, my colleague teaching the other would come to me and go, okay, what are you doing? My students keep saying, can you teach more like Professor Denon? <laughs> um, and, but, but they saw that these positive things, and so they wanted to engage with them. And that's, that's the other piece I do. That's the only place in which I bring a little bit of being an expert into this position, and it helps that I'm at the campus I was teaching on for 21 years. Mm-hmm. People know I've lived the teaching, so they know, they know there's at least that validity there. Okay, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, and I, I love that people like to be heard too. That's fabulous. And it does help that people know you know what you're talking about and that you yeah. can listen to them along the way. Fabulous, Michael. We're going to take a break again. So with me today is Michael Denon. Michael is at University of California at Irvine in the administrative side, as you've been hearing in this conversation. But historically, he's a professor of physics and astronomy. I'd like to add that he's studied the dynamics of foams and modeling of the ice melange in the fjords. And he is probably most well-known for his YouTube series on fascinating fights and for being um, in the media regularly to talk about the science of superheroes. So I can't end this conversation on leadership alone. So when we take a break, I'm going to come back. And when we come back, I'm going to want to talk to Michael about one quote he gives on innovation and about superheroes. (laughs) We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., Helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. 
These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Michael Denon, and as you've heard, he's uh, um, at the University of California, Irvine, formerly as a professor of physics and astronomy, and now in an administrative position, vice provost for teaching and learning, and the dean of the Division of Undergraduate Education. That is a lot to get out. I dare you to try to say it fast. Um, We were just talking about motivating, about how to motivate people in general who don't necessarily really have to follow you or go along with what you want to do. And in this particular case, we've been talking about faculty. If I abstract that whole conversation, I'm going to come down to a couple of things that I think are really interesting in what you said and resonate with what I see. You said at the very end that when you go out to tell people that here's what you've done wrong, it doesn't tend to go very well. And I'm also going to say that when you make people wrong, meaning they're somehow demotivated, uninteresting, uncaring, it also tends to not go very well. So if I take your philosophy and your approach with a faculty, you started by saying the truth of the matter is it's not about the reward structure. It's that faculty really do care. It's just they're very busy and teaching is hard and it's hard to admit that you don't know what, how to do it any better. And that is a not making them wrong. That is a making them good human beings trying to do the right thing and needing some help. And then the second thing you said, and again, not making them wrong, is not to say, I have the answer, here it is, let me tell you how, but rather to say, my job is to make your job easy, so you tell me where you're struggling, and I will do everything I can to help it make it easier, better, and cheaper. And you gave that example about the humanities faculty, where you said these, these, and these, this doesn't make any sense to me, what is that? Translate, help me understand what your problems are, so I can really help. And that is, again, an enabling role as opposed to a telling, directing, even with the best of intent role. Yeah. Could not do a bit. That was great. Great, great, great summary. Okay. So now, if you have not looked at Michael's website, I highly, highly recommend you go to his website. And it is Michael Denon, D-E-N-N-I-N, dot O-V-P-T-L dot U-C-I dot E-D-U. One of the things, in fact, this is, this is the website that got me to want you to come on the radio show in the first place. Um, and there's a lot of interesting ideas from how do you have impact on the world to religion in general. And you have this quote on there I like a lot. You say, real innovators not only create disruptive change, but do so by harnessing the ongoing change in the world around them, staying on the cutting edge through their outstanding leadership. So why do you, why do you say that? Why is that important? Well, I, I think, when, and, and, and really it's the middle piece, like harnessing the ongoing change. The, the world, I mean, it's very cliche, 
the world does not stay the same. We're always moving somewhere. But it's, it's noticing where that movement might be. And that comes, I think, from the way I did my science. You know, a lot of science uh, is not having a brilliant idea and then going doing something that turns out to be right. A lot of science is just paying attention to what's happening in your experiment to notice the interesting thing. Um, and for me, for instance, and universities are a little behind the curve on this, but we're getting better. The first thing I did when I came into the office was I said, you know, thought leaders typically write editorials in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and eventually I need to do that. But the world right now is in Twitter, um, Facebook, Snapchat, wherever it is. So I basically built a social media team and said, get me out there. What do we need to do? What things should we be doing so we're in the medium that, you know, the upcoming students, the world is now engaged in in a positive way. And, and we'll write the articles and we'll do the standard stuff when, when we get there, but let's do this new thing. And so it, it seems, I think, maybe like a little thing, but it really was something is going on in the world around us. There is a change in the way people are communicating. Let's harness it so we can do our job better. Uh, <laughs> There's also an element, because, you know, we know if you study the science of inventions, you know, the major trends, like rubber, for example, right. or accidents, that somebody happened to notice that experiment didn't go the way I wanted it to go. But, geez, isn't this interesting what actually happened here? And yeah. you said here, science is about noticing, paying attention to what's happening so that you can see the interesting thing. Yes, exactly. How? And, and, do you have any and, advice on how to do that? Well, you know, a lot of it, it's hard, and I think a lot of it is training ourselves to just be aware, um, you know, and, and to listen, which is hard to do. We're, 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 a very, we're becoming a very busy people. We're not, um, when, when, here's one of the things that, you know, in my career, and I worry about with my own kids, and I see what's going on. I spent a lot of time in libraries growing up looking up stuff because I didn't have the web, I spent a lot of time early in my science career cleaning stuff, cutting stuff, doing what people consider tedious labor. But in those moments, you understand the system you're dealing with better, and so you can pay attention to all the parts. And I've tried with my kids, and I try to encourage the staff and the people I work with to be intentional about what's going on around them. So one thing I've I, I, I have to be full disclosure, I stole this from the CEO of Disneyland. Um, Great. But I heard him talk early in my tenure as being a leader about some of the stuff they do to build culture. And I'm, I've created for my staff, what, so at UCI we're the anteater, so everything is about zot, zot, zot. It's a zot mm -hmm. this and a zot that, because if you go to the old BC comics, um, that right. was the noise the anteater made. Um, but we've created zot moments, and I've told them, I want people to report to me, not a person who does a good job, which I do want to care about, but these moments, capture moments where something's happened that particularly aligns with our vision, our values, or our strategic goals, and explain why that moment aligns with it. And I think that's that practice of being intentional about what's happening around you. And when you do that in the small things, you start to notice it in the larger trends in the world. And you can say, you know, with students, one of the big things that's happening in the future is we notice they don't really understand finances, and they don't make good judgments about whether this is a good or a bad loan to take to stay in school. So we need to develop a program 
to help students stay ahead of understanding finances. Um, and so it really does build on itself. Fabulous. Zot moments. I can see this taking over every world. Fabulous. <laughs> because it's not about hot attaboys. It's what I call sound bites. Yes. It's oh, a like sound that. bite around something that aligns with where we're going, <laughs> what we're trying to achieve, um, our vision, our values, our strategy, our client service, whatever it is. And it's those stories, by the way, that I think make people believe that the vision and the values and the strategy are actually real. Yes. I think without them, you don't believe it. But zots, I love it. Zot moments. It's a great phrase. Thank you. Okay. All right, I want to come back to this. I just have to read this quote one more time because I think it's such a fascinating statement. Real innovators not only create disruptive change, but they do so by harnessing the ongoing change in the world around them, staying on the cutting edge through their outstanding leadership. And again, you've said that's the noti- the, uh, the intent of noticing what's going on around you and being where the world is moving as opposed yeah. to moving in forces against it. Okay. Yeah. All right, Michael, we come to that magic moment. I'm going to shift gears on you. We're done with leadership. We're done with um, administrative. We're done with motivation. We're done with innovation. Let's get down to what everybody wants to hear about, which is the science of superheroes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And (laughs) You went into talking about the science of superheroes for a very specific reason. Why was that? Well, it was basically because students asked me to. I got invited to go talk to students. Um, in their dorms about the very first Superman movie that Christopher Reeves did and, and the science of Superman. That actually led to students asking me to do, we have these one-unit freshman seminars, so I did a course. That got noticed by um, the Orange County Register, their science writer. That got noticed by the LA Times. That got noticed by Prometheus Productions, and I ended up in their um, Science of Superman on National Geographic, which then became... Batman tech, Spider-Man tech, Star Wars tech, and I said, heck, this is a heck of a lot of fun. I'm going to keep doing this. I made a full-on course on it, um, which has been very successful over the years. I then got into the YouTube show on Fascinating Fights. Um, I still have not achieved my dream goal of going to the San Diego Comic-Con, but I've been to other (laughs) (laughs) Comic-Cons. Hopefully somebody listening will make that happen. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that's and that was actually one of those things about paying attention to a moment. Um, I could have easily said no at many stages along that, but I'm like, this could be a very interesting way to communicate and teach science to the public. Let's explore it. Let's see where it takes me. An interesting way to teach science. Explain. Well, one of the challenges, I think, with teaching science is people get hung up on what it looks like in high school, which is give me a word problem that's math that I have to do, and I hate word problems, so I'm not going to do it, versus... It's how we understand the way the world works and the rules that the word is, world is governed by. So when I watch Iron Man flying um, in Avengers, is, is that consistent with the rules of the universe as we understand them, or is that just special effect magic? And ask a student to think about, think about everything you've seen fly, and does he fly the same way those do? And now what are the rules underlying that? Wouldn't you like to know how that works and how it doesn't work? And it brings people in to that aspect of science that they don't often get to be challenged around. So for any parents listening whose kids are taking a course called the Science of Superheroes, it's actually real science underneath it, It just in case there was any any question about it at all. Um, 
So what's the favorite question you are asked about superheroes all the time? So probably my, my favorite question is um, often aimed at, you know, what, what really can work. And it's actually any superhero who has powers around invisibility because invisibility cloaks are something near and dear to my heart that material scientists, they don't work on bubbles like I do, but they work on similar materials, can actually make material that now bends light around you and effectively makes an invisibility cloak. The problem is it tends to only work with one color of light at a time. So I get to tell the students, if you know there's going to be blue light, you can wear your blue invisibility cloak. If you know it's going to be red light, (laughs) you can wear your red one. Um, They're also all made out of ceramics, so they're very hard cloaks and they're not very comfortable. So I can't fold it up into a little teeny tiny suitcase and whip it out at the moment I need. Exactly. You can't fold it. You can't bend it. But the fact that we can even get that far right now with materials just blows my mind. And and when people hear that, they assume they've stumped me. Oh, invisibility must not be real. And then to find out that scientists are actually making things that can create what is effectively invisibility and not just camouflage is very exciting to people. I can understand why this would be very captivating to say all this fantastical stuff that we see in movies and, you know, what of that is real, could be real, might be real in the future, and what of that is just, you know, movie stuff, um, right. stunts and special effects. And if it were going to be real, what would it take to make it real? It's actually very fascinating. So who's your favorite superhero? So I usually answer this question Spider-Man because he has been for the longest time. And part of that was, as a kid, I think my two favorites were Spider-Man in in the cartoons and Wonder Woman in the League of Justice. And Wonder Woman just hasn't been in the public eye for a while. But when they made the new Wonder Woman movie, she jumped right up. Not only is she my favorite, but that's my favorite superhero movie. And my kids laugh because they always ask me, Dad, what's your favorite X, Y, or Z? And I usually don't commit to one. But after seeing Wonder Woman, I called my oldest daughter and I said, I will now commit. The Wonder Woman movie is my favorite, beats all the Avengers, all the Marvel, um, and now I'm on public national radio committing to that. Okay, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And what about her superpowers? Are there any of those that are real, or do you have a favorite one? My favorite one is is the deflecting bullets, because it it lives on that edge. Um, You know... We, we know how to make materials and armor that, per, I mean, we have bulletproof vests, we have all sorts of things. So the idea of having a bracelet or a material that deflects projectiles and bullets um, has a good grounding in science and allows you to talk about a lot of materials. And, and then you have that challenge of the speed at which she does it, right? Yeah. Can human reflexes really be that fast? And you get to move a little bit out of my comfort zone. This is about being out of your comfort zone into biology where I'm not necessarily an expert, but there's some basic physics that limits how fast you could move your arms and how fast your reflexes can be. I mean, your brain has to process and then communicate to the muscles. Um, So you have these places where science puts some challenges on it and places where it works. Right. Fascinating. I have a feeling we could talk about this forever. And for anybody who would like to do more about this one, I'd encourage you to go 
to the YouTube clip and listen to the science and technology behind Spider-Man. Fascinating discussion about the impact of radioactivity and materials. With me today is Michael Denon. Michael's at University of California, Irvine. You can see a fascinating history, both as a professor in physics and astronomy and now on the administrative side. Michael, my favorite quote from you today is still the, so long as we make fewer mistakes than our competitor, we're going to win. I like that one. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you very much for having me. And join us next week for another episode. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.